Hello, and welcome to another episode of Woman in Place. My name is Ronka Faliti, and I am your host. I am so excited to present this bonus content today. We sit down with my husband, Yinka Faliti, the Democratic nominee for Missouri Secretary of State. We talk about his reasons for running for office. We talk about voting matters, the issues of importance to women in this election, and so much more. If you enjoy this podcast, please take 9 to 13 seconds to leave us a rating or write a review. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to another episode of Women in Place brought to you by Corriday. My name is Ronka Faliti and I am your host. Today we're doing something different and inviting our first male guest to the podcast to discuss something near and dear to all of our hearts right now, voting matters. Yinka Faliti is the Democratic nominee for Missouri Secretary of State. He's on the front line of the issues that matter to us around voting. If you recognize the name, you recognize that we're related. Inka is my husband of over 10 years, the father of our four children, and the honey in my tea. I drink multiple cups a day, so that's saying something. Inka, welcome to Woman in Place. Thank you so much, love, for having me. Thank you for this podcast. This is a terrific podcast, and I'm just honored to be a part of the series in an important time. Awesome. Are you excited to also be the honey in my tea every day? Yinka, it's customary to have our guests introduce themselves. We want you to come in and tell us who you are. Introduce yourself. Who are you? What's your story? Yeah, so the title that, that I think most folks would recognize me by today is, is what you mentioned at the outset. I am the Democratic nominee for Missouri Secretary of State, but fundamentally, I am a child of God. I am a husband to you. I am a father to our four cheeky and charming children. <laughs> I am a brother. I am a son. Those are things I identify with first and foremost, and a best friend to my best friend, and a friend to other friends. and And I am and I'm the nominee, and I and I recognize that in in these times, you know that role gets elevated because, as you said, voting is so important. Mm-hmm. It's front and center. It is the elephant in our country, the elephant in our state right now. Absolutely. So on this podcast, we talk about identity a lot. We talk about all the hats. And I heard multiple hats from father to husband to son, brother, friend, and a touch bearer of democracy right now, right, in our state. And really, someone given hope. When you think about all the hats that you're currently balancing and wearing, which hats do you find is easiest to wear, which is most challenging? Husband, husband. <laughs> husband is easiest to wear. That's, what it's just, that's the right answer. That's the right answer. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. We keep it real. This is an authentic space. You can be yourself. Yeah, Mostly. I, I, <laughs> I would not be held accountable for my words later on by my wife. You know, really, right now, father is is the most difficult to wear mm. because we are all experiencing, parents are mm-hmm. experiencing this rightful pressure to figure out how to educate their children during this COVID pandemic, how to explain to them what's happening in a way that they can understand it mm. in their own framework as children, but in a way that doesn't scare them or Absolutely. frighten them so much that they're inconsolable. 
And we also have to tell them about what's going on in the world beyond COVID, but what's happening with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and why and are then the people... wildfires and, yeah. you know, in the Western part of the country. Yeah. yeah. Why are people protesting? Absolutely. Why does the president say that? Mm. What does it mean Black Lives Matter? Mm. So having trying to explain these things because you can't ignore them. You can't just pretend they're not happening because the kids are seeing them, whether they're getting snippets of news or you're listening to something on the radio, they they happen to hear it. Or as in our neighborhood, we had protests on the street in front of our house. (laughs) Right. You can't ignore it. It's coming to your front yard. So how do you language these things to children? That's to me, that's the most difficult I have to agree with you that, you know, it's it's definitely a challenge. And it's one of the questions we're going to get to later. But let's go there now. Teaching children about politics, teaching children about activism. What are you doing? What are your thoughts? And share a little bit more. You know, what's funny is that children, you know, we we hear the adage, children are like sponges. Mm -hmm. We hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. But when you have your own children and you (laughs) you hear them, we hear them regurgitate things you didn't even know they were listening to. Like our three-year-old, you remember our Mm -hmm. three-year-old Sade? Democratic nominee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Campaigning with kids at the time of COVID. as most people are working from home, I'm campaigning from home mm-hmm. a lot, and I'm spending a lot of time on the phones, and my three-year-old daughter is hearing me on the phones talk to people to work Inspire for, for them and encourage them. Encourage yeah, them. absolutely. And so she's reciting my spiel. She's like, they're kind of not any... West Point. <laughs> the salient points. Yeah. You didn't even talk about that in your introduction. Give us a little bit of your resume, the way Shadi will talk about it. <laughs> Let's brag on you a little bit. Or do you want me to give you a resume? You, you, know, you know it well. You know it well. So, like mm-hmm. my wife, I was born in, in Lagos, Nigeria. I immigrated when I was seven years old. Like many families, we mm-hmm. came piecemeal. My parents were here already. They had my two sisters. I was still in Nigeria. I came when I was seven, and I met them for the first time. Mm-hmm. My They were three years old and two years old. Mm-hmm. I got off the airport at JFK Airport, and stretched out my hand and said, my name is Jean Khan, I'm your brother. And that's how right. I met my sisters and our family began. And mm-hmm. we, we were poor. And like many poor families, we were transient. We mm. moved a lot. We moved a lot within states. We moved from state to state because parents were trying to find a place to fit in mm-hmm. where they could have a steady job, where they could raise their children. All the barriers that people who come to this country from another country have to endure. And uh, fast forward, I grew up mostly in Florida and Texas, high school in Texas. I earned my citizenship from Texas. I earned my appointment to West Point from Texas. And that that changed my life, oh. getting admitted to West Point and being able to attend, graduating in 1998, opened up so many doors. I'm commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Army. I served six years active duty, two tours to Kuwait. Folks here listening might remember Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. We deploy in 2001 to keep him in check. Mm-hmm. We get back to Fort Hood in August of 01. We're really happy. We've done our duty. Mm-hmm. We brought all our soldiers home. We were mm-hmm. happy. And the very next month, we're attacked mm-hmm. on 9-11. Mm-hmm. So we go right back. Of course. We go right back to Kuwait. And in the same deserts we've been in just a few weeks prior. Mm-hmm. Felt great to defend the country, though, after 9-11. Fast forward 2004. I leave the Army as a captain. Moved to St. Louis, law school, Washington University. My plan was study for three years, go back in the Army, keep serving. A f- law firm here called Brian Kenny <laughs> had other plans. 
you know, they say life is what happens when you're busy planning. Right. I go to Brian Cave. I practice law for several years there. But it's exciting work, right. but not that mission. big mission. Mm-hmm. And I wanted mission, so I went back. I said, let me be a state prosecutor, help people. So I went and helped people who've been assaulted, abused, burglarized, loved it, loved mm. getting justice. Mm-hmm. for those people there's no there's not a thank you you'll get in life like that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. somebody who's been assaulted mm-hmm. and you got justice for them right mission is definitely something that you know since i've i've known you for a long time yeah, <laughs> yeah. i've known you before we had gray hair <laughs> <laughs> more you than me i hope <laughs> i don't know if that's true though no, but I think mission is something that has always been near and dear to you. And I remember sometime between when you told me there were palm trees in St. Louis, which, you know, I was a ploy to get me to move here. Or even a, a while ago, I remember saying that I, I knew you weren't a money guy. You've always been mission focused. And so when you left the prosecutor's office, tell us about how you saw a bigger mission and where the bigger, bigger mission has led you to run in for Missouri Secretary of State. The prosecutor's office was like TV. Hmm. Say more about that. I haven't heard that one. Let's hear it. (laughs) There are a few jobs like TV. Okay. So folks listening may may have seen the show Law and Order Mm -hmm. or any of these lawyer shows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was like Law and Order. I mean, it was (laughs) dramatic. It was fast. It was action-packed. The defendant took the stand. You didn't know what the defendant was going to say. You're dealing with the jury. And, you know, the other side is yelling, objection. I mean, you're thinking on your feet. I mean, it was like TV. That's interesting. And it was fulfilling in in a very meaningful way. I mean, you're you're coming to the rescue of people who've had a horrible thing happen, whether it's somebody who's been sexually abused. Like my first jury trial mm. was an 11-year-old boy whose teacher was showing him pornography in the classroom. Mm. That was my first jury trial as a prosecutor. And to get the boy to talk, to get the family to cooperate. I mean, all of these. So, so to obtain it, justice for the family. To obtain justice. Absolutely. So it was it was an emotional job. Most of my cases were not child sex abuse mm. cases. Most of my cases were gun and drug cases. Mm. And I began to, and I, I remember this distinctly, there's a, a process called arraignment mm-hmm. where, where people who've been charged with a crime are brought in the courtroom, they're mm-hmm. told of their charges and they can plead guilty or innocent or not guilty. And I would work in this court. This was one of my duties and I would work, all prosecutors have this duty, you know, we take a week at a time. And I would see black men, mostly black men and mostly men, mm. chained one to another, mm. to, mm. another to another, to that another, to another. That just... It reminds me of the the African American Museum in Memphis yeah. when you see the slave chains, you know. Like yeah. when you've shared that with me, that's the image I see. But yeah. continue. But that's it. That's what I was experiencing, seeing this. And of course my job was to speak on behalf of the state. So Absolutely. I had to do my job. But after a while I began to realize I'm using the very best of me, all of my energy on the wrong end mm-hmm. of the, the whole process. We need prosecutors, mm-hmm. victims need justice, but I needed to use my energy on the front end. Mm-hmm. Be- because what, by the time somebody shows up in a courtroom and they're bound in a chain to another man, to another man, to another man, at that point, they're just trying to negotiate, am I getting five years or 10 years? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get to the, the front end where I could make impact before all so where'd you go? So I went to United Way. I went to United Way of Greater St. Louis. What did you do? 
And I led the division that raised the money. So uh, the, the workplace campaigns division are giving from our high net worth people. Uh, all of that, I led the whole fundraising apparatus for the organization. And how did you do? <laughs> well, it wasn't just me. I had one of the best teams I've ever had in any organization I worked with at United Way. That's amazing. I mean, they were terrific. And we had great leadership and we had a terrific board. I mean, it was a solidly run organization. organization. Yeah. And because of that, and because of the generosity of the people in, in this, in region, this region, region, it's a very generous region. Incredible. It's incredibly generous. Yeah. And we have an opportunity to witness a lot of the generosity, including the support of the campaign. And I've served on a board here and, you know, just being involved. It's a very active community. It is. Yeah. It is. Okay. And so say more about how you did in the years you were at United Way. Well, over the four years, I was there four and a half years, over the four campaigns, mm -hmm. we raised over $300 million for the greater St. Louis region. Our first campaign, we raised north of $73 million. The second campaign, $74 million. The third campaign, $75 million. My fourth mm. and final campaign, we raised just under $76 million. That's a lot. Which makes no sense. St. Louis is only the 21st or 22nd largest metropolitan statistical area in the country, yet we were outraising Dallas, That's amazing. New York, Chicago, Miami, L.A. Well, that goes to tell you about two things. The need is great and the response is great. And United Way is not the only organization that people give to no. in this region. And so that's why when I say like I've had a front row seat, just being a community member to see how well this community engages. I mean, you know, in some ways, like St. Louis really we should puff up our chest a little bit more. We do have a lot of disparity in outcomes. We absolutely do. You can often figure out what your outcome is going to be based on your zip code. It's not always true, but it's directionally accurate. And But I have been really impressed with the, the given of our place. Let's talk a little bit. Let's fast forward and move from prosecutor to on the not-for-profit side, so philanthropy and reaching people, helping people. And now, where did you go after that? And how did you decide to run for office? Yeah, I went to a non uh, a nonprofit called Forward Through Ferguson, the successor nonprofit to the Ferguson Commission after the Michael Brown Jr. shooting. And that nonprofit's work was to organize the Ferguson Commission ended its work. Mm -hmm. The nonprofit was to take up the mantle and help the greater St. Louis region do the work of getting to racial equity in all of these disparate areas that were interconnected. Mm. Education, healthcare, transportation, criminal justice, housing, and so on. And equity is tied to race. Yeah. As you said at the outset, in, in this region, mm -hmm. you can predict, unfortunately, you can predict mm -hmm. a person's life outcome based, based on upon their zip code. So you did that work, and? I did that work, and it was really hard work. It was it emotional. Was, it was entrenched work. It was generational work, long-term work, mm -hmm. nothing that you're going to do a campaign for a year and get results. Right. And, and after a bit at that work, it became clear to me that, that we need Fort through Ferguson, mm -hmm. but it was limited in what it could do. Mm. Because Fourth through Ferguson could not right change law. any policy or <laughs> right. write law. It right. could push forward, it could mm -hmm. agitate for it, it could pull for, but it couldn't actually write the laws. Mm -hmm. And 
I needed to get to where people were actually making the policies. Because when you pull the thread back on these issues, on these various issues, these various areas I talked about, the threat went all the way up to the state level. Oh. And so I knew that I needed to get to the state level. Well, I have to say, you know, thank you for fighting for better outcomes for a lot of us. You know, I wouldn't be myself. You know, I like to say authentic is my middle name. <laughs> I wouldn't be myself if I wouldn't, uh, you know, it's a lot to balance, right? Especially having young kids, having our infant is not even one yet. She refuses to crawl, y'all. <laughs> She's nine months old. But, you know, having an infant, having a pandemic and, you know, just all of the all of these things, you know, we have to have a lot of conversations about running and being out there and what that means to our family. And for me, for me to get to a place where I can say thank you, it's really understanding that we need representation. I trust you. <laughs> I know I, I've known you for a long time. I know, like you said, you're a child of God, you know, and I know your policies are going to be influenced by faith and you're going to listen. You can listen very well. And you hear that, y'all? She said, I, I want y'all to take note. She said, I listen very well. He does. He really does. <laughs> he re I mean, I think that's why you were really good as a prosecutor. You know, like I remember when you were in law school, I came to a trial team, you know, like you're, you listen intently and you listen well to people. So you listen well when you speak, which is important, I think, in leadership. And, you know, with George Floyd, I just thought, you know, we need, we need us. We need us. And so I thank you for serving, um, serving for us, serving for our children and, you know, serving for our community. I want to talk about voting because that's why we're here. That's why I wanted you to come. And 80% of our audience are women, you know, late 30s to upper 50s. So we have really the voting block <laughs> that are listening to this podcast and in the past 20 years, voting power of women continue to increase. Women of color, their voting power has increased 59% in the past 20 years. When you think about the electorate and when you think about women, what is it that we should be caring about right now? We should certainly be caring about the things that women care about. Mm -hmm. I think for far too long in our political discourse, we have not lifted up the things that are central to women's lives. I mean, this has long been a problem. You look at boardrooms in this country that are overly represented by men. You look at state houses in every state, Missouri, name the state. You look at the state, mostly men. You look at our U.S. House of Representatives, mostly men. You look at our U.S. Senate, mostly men. Yet the population is evenly split, if not you know slightly more represented more by women. women, and yeah. the voting block is it's certainly more, more women. women yeah. So there's a mismatch, mm -hmm. and it creates these problems. When you talk about childcare, right. I mean, uh, we, we've talked about how this pandemic has affected working women, and yourself included. I have uh, a front row seat uh, to it. Uh. You know, preach <laughs> <Free> on it. <laughs> you know, working women who who have a, a full time job. They're working from home. They have their children. They're trying to manage childcare. They're trying to manage education of their children. Oh, no, by the way, they have a spouse. They have household responsibilities. I mean, Keep listing my duties, baby. <laughs> trying to see how much of it you see. <laughs> 
you know, right. but, but the problem is we have not created the, the societal structures through our policies mm-hmm. to ensure that our women can thrive and be successful and can have all the choices. I mean, women are having to make choices that they don't want to make, right. but they're being forced to make because the support isn't there. The support isn't there from our policies, our right. public policies. And when you say it, you know, the we've planted seeds and they're growing the exact outcome that it should grow. So we don't have great infrastructure to support working families. We don't have, you know, the policies in place. We could, we'll, we'll keep your job for 12 weeks, but doesn't mean you'll get paid. So you may have to rush back. You're not, you know, spending time with your children. Those issues really, are we voting for those issues? Or are we voting for people who are going to have our best interest at heart? Well, we have opportunities to do both. Mm-hmm. For example, in Missouri, just last month, August 4th, this state voted on Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. Medicaid expansion is something that in Missouri covers nearly a quarter million more Missourians. Mm-hmm. And you're talking families being able to be covered and get the health care they need. Well, obviously that affects our working mothers who have children who need health care, the mothers themselves who, who need health care themselves, mm-hmm. prenatal and and postnatal care that women need. So these are, we're able to vote for these issues, but we're also able to vote for the political leaders who would champion these issues, mm-hmm. who would trumpet these issues, who would who would listen <laughs> to women, working mm-hmm. women, mothers, even women who don't work, single women, who would listen to women across the spectrum of all the things that women can be in their lives and actually push for the changes that would positively affect women and families. I think what you're saying is that we need to vote for you. No. <laughs> I'll vote for you. You know, you already have my vote. That would be something, right? <laughs> if I didn't. No, I think that is a powerful, powerful statement to identify candidates that champion our causes. In 2016, you said something earlier that the voting block is more represented by women, but statistically in 2016, 63% of eligible women voted versus 59% of men. And, you know, there's a lot of energy right now to get out the vote. There are things happening both locally and nationally to not get out the vote. Talk a little bit about your perspective on voting oppression. (laughs) To understand voting oppression in this country, we have to go to the very beginning. Okay. And the very beginning is 1776 when the the founders of this country declared independence against Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And when they created these documents, these founding documents, these charter documents, they did not envision anybody voting except for white male landholders. Mm. White male land. That was it. I mean, it would take a century and a quarter plus more to get women. For women to get their right to vote. I mean, that came in, in August of 1920. The country declared independence in 1776. So ever since the founding, everybody who is not a white male has been fighting and scratching and clawing for their right to vote. And even after, so, so black men actually got the right to vote, mm-hmm. the legally protected right to vote, right after the Civil War with the passage of the 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment. So, you know, you had Abraham Lincoln assassinated in 1865, end of Civil War in 1865. 
And then in 1866, uh, you had the 14th Amendment passed, which gave citizenship to everybody who was born in the U.S. And then in 1870, you had the 15th Amendment, which protected the right to vote for black men. Hmm. Well, great. But the problem was it was legally protected, but realistically, not so much. And while many blacks, you had a lot of blacks voting after Reconstruction. In fact, you had blacks in Congress. You had more blacks in Congress during the the Reconstruction Reconstruction period than we do today. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. But what happened was over the years, you had the black codes passed by seven states. You had Jim Jim Crow Crow. laws. Mm -hmm. So much so that, again, in 1965, you had to have a voting rights act. Remember, we had already given black men the right to vote in 1870. But because of all the shenanigans and nonsense and the suppression of the Southern states were doing, we had to have a voting rights act again in 1965 that said, no, you cannot have poll taxes. No, you cannot have liter- literacy tests. No, you cannot suppress the vote of black people. So that's the history of voting in this country. Hmm. And so we are still today fighting. Feeling the, right the effects of all of that. Yeah. Hmm. And so there's the history of oppression where are we today we are not where we ought to be and we are not where we think we are you know we think that well everybody can just vote you know there are people who are like what is what do you mean there's voter suppression you can just vote well the reality is not really if you're a person first of all i'll speak in missouri mm-hmm. for missouri most missourians you know pre-pandemic normal times they can vote only on a few hours of one day because Missouri does not have what we call no excuse absentee voting, meaning you can vote ahead of election day if you have an ex- without any excuse. Mm-hmm. Missouri does not have early voting, means you can just, if you're ready to vote, you can vote. Missouri does not have mail-in voting. We do this year only mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. But right. We don't have vote by mail. So... Our voting is still as if it's in the early 1900s, very, very regressive. Mm. And so the state of our vote in Missouri is that because of the current policies and structures, the voice of so many Missourians are suppressed. Because if you are a person who's working third shift or mm. otherwise you, you don't have childcare, right. going on that specific day, the only day to vote is and something you're not able to bracing lines, potentially, you know, bracing lines. I know that... We, even before this, we try to make sure, we even try to include the kids when we go vote. And not just voting in the presidential year, but voting in our local races, uh, because all of those things matter. And we need to, you know, build the muscle. <laughs> it's it's a right that I obtained when I became a citizen in 2011, I believe. And it's a right that I don't take for granted. I realized that many, many people died so that I can cast my vote. And to your point, just in 1920, were women able to vote in this country? And talking about voting, representation matters. We've already talked about that. And oftentimes when you see yourself is when you are jazzed and energized, right? So in Missouri specifically, Nicole Galloway is running to be the governor. So we see as a woman, I see, I see another woman and she's a mother. She has three young kids. I'm hopeful that, you know, my struggle, she has some of that struggle. We may not have the same exact struggle, right? But hopefully she would vote. She would create policy or be an advocate 
do you believe her at the head of the ticket will drive more voter turnout for more women voting in the state? I, I would hope so. Mm-hmm. I would have to think so. You're right that you know Missouri has never had a, a woman governor. Mm-hmm. This state became a state in 1821. There's never been a woman governor, so I think. I think her you know, running... I, I think I didn't know that. I knew in any of the statewide offices there hasn't been a person of color, but we haven't even had a governor, a female. No. That's incredible. No. I mean, you look at Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. You look at other states that have had women governors. You look at other states that have had a person of color as governor. Missouri hasn't had that. So her run is historic. Mm. And I do think uh, more women are energized, like you said, to see themselves. And and my run is historic. It, as you said, Missouri's never had a person of color in any of the six statewide executive polls. So while Missouri has not had a woman governor, mm-hmm. it has had women in the other five statewide executive mm-hmm. posts, namely lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, a treasurer and auditor, but Missouri has never had a person of color in any of those six statewide executive hmm. posts. And, and I think so, it's time, then. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time. Shameless plug. <laughs> Vote Incafality for Missouri Secretary of State, November 3rd. All contribute to the campaign. Incafality.com. Look at this, babe. I'm advertising for there you. There you go. There you go. There you go. Yeah, that's, yeah, representation matters. And thank you for representing not just people of color, but also immigrants, you know, people who've adopted this country as their country, who've served as you have served, who has a love of country and want to see the country thrive. The thing that comes to mind is hope versus anger, right? Right now in the country, we have hope and we have anger. Which emotions should we channel? I'm going to answer the question this way, a short anecdote. I used to eat a lot of Cadoba. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that when you go to Cadoba, they ask you, do you want black or pinto beans? <laughs> and I would always, I'd pick one or the other. And then one day I was, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we are talking about Cadoba. And he said, and, and we both liked it. And he said, yeah, when I go, you know, I get both beans. I was like, you can get both? <laughs> He's like, yeah, not get that. Just ask for both. <laughs> that changed my life. I didn't know I could ask That's for such both. A simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So so we don't have to choose one. Mm. We can have both hope and anger. Mm. And both are needed. Mm. We ought to be angry at the status quo. We ought to be angry at what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. Mm and countless others, too numerous to list in this podcast. And we ought to have hope that if we do the work, if we do the work, we can make change. We can hold this country to its promise. We can hold Missouri to its promise and its potential. If we do the work, if we get engaged, if we vote, if we agitate, if we push, if we pull for change, we can make change come. (sighs) We can make change come. I love that. I love that. So you're campaigning in the middle of a pandemic and we both share the responsibility of keeping our nine month old quiet in the middle of our Zoom calls or conference calls. A lot of people who are listening are women as well. How 
has balance in work life, integration of work and life, full work life, no work life. <laughs> How are you going to change because of what you've experienced when it comes to balance? I don't know if there's perfect balance mm -hmm. at all times. I think there is prioritization of this or that over mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. at a particular time. And then at another time, that gets prioritized. And another time, this other thing gets prioritized. I think balance is a fallacy. I think balance is a mirage. It isn't real. And instead, what I've seen is that sometimes you do need to block out time and you're going to sit down and play Hot Wheels with your son. <laughs> and that's what's most important in that, that is moment. what's most important, right. But then other times you have a Zoom call with voters mm -hmm. in Joplin, Missouri, and you just need to box out that hour for those people in Joplin, Missouri, because those people are looking for hope and inspiration. Mm -hmm. So it's it's what's important in the moment. I yeah. Leave I could step on your period a little bit. So I do believe that now more and more women, anecdotally, the people I'm talking to, so it's not necessarily representing the entire population, but women are becoming more confident in choosing themselves because there is a realization that we move, move, we're going so fast and juicing the guilt. I'm sorry, I can't dial into that call. You know, I'm going to have to have the call when my children are napping, you know, and please don't schedule anything before 8 a.m. I'm just trying to get them to get on their Zoom <laughs> meetings and all that stuff. My hope is that there is more awareness of just self-care, not even just for parents. If you think about the hamster wheel, right? It's demanding. <laughs> it's demanding. And the hamster is just trying to keep up. <laughs> and more and more, I think people are going to be like, no, 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 not right now. Um, we're going to do this now, like you said, and we're going to do that later, like you said. So we are nearing the end of our podcast time and i want to do two things so we always ask the same questions at the end to our guests but before we go there the reason why we started was you know we want to talk about voting matters because voting matters what would you want to share with our audience you know there are people who despite all the emphasis on voting there are people who are forlorn they're despondent oh. they've given up they're like yeah but i voted in the last election oh. i voted in the one before that and there are people who say can it really change anything will it really matter with and, all the cheating potentially yeah. <laughs> and i say this voting is the beginning of what we have to do as citizens in a democracy voting is not the end of it mm. and i think many, many, sometimes people they think, oh, they voted and they kind of wipe their hands their and they're hands, like, oh, yeah. I'm good. I've done what I'm supposed to do. But that's only the beginning of what we're required to do. What we're then required to do is when we vote for whoever, whoever we vote for, mm -hmm. we, we support them in office. And then we hold them accountable. Mm. Because that's how you actually make change is that accountability process. And and that's the part that I think many of us are missing. The other thing that, that I want people to know is that our democracy is not guaranteed. Mm, that scares me, then. It's scary, and it's as, it's as true as it is scary. It scares me a lot. It's not guaranteed. And we need no, look no further than Russia, than many countries on the continent of mm -hmm. Africa, than 
Iraq. There are many countries who have democracy in name only. Mm. And our 200 plus year experiment is just that. It's an experiment. And it can fail. Mm. And it can succeed. Hope. I'm holding <laughs> on to hope. <laughs> and I will do my part <laughs> to do what you just laid out. Vote, hold people accountable, and support the people we vote for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Wow. So those are the things you wanted to share with our audience. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, I am so happy that you came here and you are woman in in place. You know, I always say that anybody can be woman in. <laughs> But thank you for standing in the gap, holding space and helping to make sure that this experiment continues on. So we always like to ask the same fun questions at the end of our podcast. So you are going to fill in the blank. I am going to wonder if I will know what you'll say. So the first one is, I feel the most like me when I am interacting with people. Playing basketball. (laughs) that's what i would have said you do love people you do love people i i I do see that if i could change the world by doing just one thing i would get rid of gerrymandering Hmm. that would have a big impact on the world Hmm. oh okay what this one is you may struggle with this one but let's go with it uh one beauty or lifestyle secret that i use to achieve a packaged look I work on my shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say haircut. You always look so fresh when you get your hair cut. Oh, my, I like getting haircuts. So you work on your shoulders. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to check out your shoulders more. <laughs> I didn't know that was your secret. Now it's out. Well, thank you so much, Inka, for joining us today, sharing your thoughts, sharing your wit, sharing your wisdom and your energy. We so appreciate you and everybody, please, 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 please continue to work to keep this experiment of our democracy going. Vote often, vote early, and let's hold our leaders accountable and let's pray for more representation. I am Bronca Faliti, and my husband is going to have the last word. Well, that is a rare thing. That almost <laughs> never happens, but I'm grateful to have it. So so I will reiterate, there are many elections throughout a year. Vote in every election, but certainly uh, vote once for November 3rd. And if you want to learn more about me and our campaign, go to our website, yinkafaliti.com, Y-I-N-K-A-F-A-L-E-T-I. to learn more, to support our campaign. And I would be remiss if I did not thank the woman on this podcast, my wife, Ronquette Faliti. You know, you can't run a statewide campaign without the kind of support that she's provided and the kind of encouragement and the inspiration that she's provided. And so I just want to thank her for everything she's done to create the conditions to even make this possible for me to be running. So thank you, love. You're welcome. Hashtag, I got your back. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again for listening to another episode of Women in Place and tune in for the next one, focusing still on voting matters and representation. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Women in Place. We are excited to continue to bring you content that resonates. For questions, comments, ideas, want to appear on the show? Please 
email us at womanin at shopcorridor.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a few seconds to like, rate, or review. 